Thanks, Josh. Evening, everyone, again. It's great to see you. As um, I said earlier, we are starting tonight three, uh, four weeks on our One Question for God series. So you hopefully would have seen these flyers, seen these flyers at some point. Right? Sorted. Have you seen these flyers? Um, we've had, I think we've had about 180 questions um, via the chalkboards and online and SMS over at Kirribilli. And um, tonight we're looking at the, the question: uh, Why pin so much on a, a book that is full of fiction and contradiction? Um, next week uh, we are asking the question: Why is that? We're answering the ask, answering the question: Why is there so much hate and evil in the world? And then week three, uh, we're asking, why are my prayers unanswered? And then week four, we're looking at whether God is really anti-gay. So come along, bring uh, friends along who might be interested in hearing some answers to those questions. They're going to be uh, four great weeks, so should be should be really good. Um, I wanted to start, though, by uh, b- before we look at the main question, by uh, sharing some of the rather comical questions that we've had. So uh, out on the chalkboards over at Kiribati, somebody asked us, what is the capital of Azerbaijan? Uh, that is Baku, um, but they need to know how to spell Azerbaijan by the, by the looks of things from their spelling. Um, somebody asked, why don't they make the planes out of the stuff they make black boxes out of? Well, I went and asked our own Adam Fairley, who is a Ministry of Defence engineer, and he said that the planes wouldn't take off, and the black box stuff is actually red anyway. And someone asked, how do I reverse park? If that was you, if you asked, how do I reverse park, I will happily show you tonight, after church, free of charge, out in the car park. Um, As I said, today's question is, why do we pin so much on a book, the Bible, that is full of fiction and contradiction? Contradiction. And I want to say up front, I think it's only fair to say up front, that I stand here as somebody who has pinned a lot on the Bible. In fact, I've pinned everything in my life on the Bible being true and trustworthy. My priorities, my life, uh, my job, uh, my country even. The reason I'm here is because we spend our life teaching the Bible. And um, the way I parent, everything about my life is pinned on the Bible. So I have a lot riding on whether the Bible is true and, and trustworthy. And that started at the age of 18. Um, when I um, started at the age of 18, when I first... Uh, the penny first drops on a, a 2,000 year old verse. Let me uh, read it for you. Um, it's a verse in the New Testament. It says this For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. I have a lot riding on the Bible. Every Christian, if you're a Christian here this evening, you have a lot riding on the Bible because Christianity stands or falls on whether the Bible is true or not. The Bible is still the most popular book ever sold. Apparently uh, in the last 50 years it's sold nearly 50 billion copies. Uh, It's an important question whether the Bible is true or trustworthy, isn't it? Because if we're Christian here then it matters whether we build our faith on a lie, on a book of fiction, or whether we build our faith on what is history, true, and trust, trustworthy. I, uh, for the first 18 or so years of my life, had assumed, like many, 
that the Bible was a book of fiction. I thought it was a collection of stories with a few morals in there so that you could give the kids a hard time and teach them how to behave. And I thought, kind of thought that the, the main character uh, was kind of uh, cooked up by some bored fishermen trying to make their first century trader make Jesus a, a celebrity in the ancient world. I didn't think there was much truth in it until I started reading the Bible. If you've come here tonight and you think now what I used to think, that the Bible is fiction, that it is a conspiracy made up by first century fishermen, that they all kind of concocted it, that the, that the uh, few stories about Jesus kind of got exaggerated and spread and he suddenly he turned, eventually turned into this uh, Christ uh, miracle worker then can I encourage you to read the Bible? If you take away nothing else tonight, take away one of these Luke's Gospels. There's a pile at the back and read it. It will take you about an hour and a half to read that. So read it this week. And I want you to see, I'd love you to see that the Bible is true and trustworthy. I think from just reading it, you will be able to ask some good questions and investigate further. I've spent the last... 20 years reading and studying the Bible. I've been to Bible college. I've learnt ancient Greek that the New Testament was written in. I used to work near the British Museum and I saw what the British have stolen from the near ancient world. There are many artifacts in the British Museum that testify that the Bible is true, that what is written down in the Old Testament actually happen. There's a, a bunch of stuff there that I'd love to share with you, talk to you about afterwards. I've read um, historians, Jewish and Roman historians, Pliny, Tacitus, uh, Josephus, all first century historians that back up the New Testament. But the more I study the Bible, the more I read the Bible itself, the more I'm persuaded that the Bible isn't fiction, but it is in fact History. The Bible isn't full of contradiction from a half of, full of contradiction from a half-baked conspiracy, but it is full of genuine eyewitness accounts. I want to spend some time just unpacking why I'm persuaded that the Bible is true and trustworthy, particularly the New Testament. I want to spend some time unpacking and sharing with you why I think the Bible is worth pinning your life on, worth spending an hour and a half this week reading one of these and asking some questions of it, whether it really is true. Well, the first thing I'm persuaded of is that the Bible is history, not fiction. And I'm persuaded of that primarily because the New Testament authors themselves make the claim that they set out to write history, not fiction. I wonder whether you noticed our uh, second Bible reading was from the book of Luke. If you've got your Bibles open, you can look at that sentence again, Luke 1, sentence 3. Uh, Luke writes this, It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus. Like that, Josh? 
Uh, Theophilus is uh, the Greek guy that has commissioned uh, Luke to write this history. Luke is a medical doctor, he's a historian, he's a history geek. He likes evidence, he likes tactile stuff, he doesn't write anything down unless he knows that it actually happens. And he says that his aim was to, to write a real flesh and blood historical biography of Jesus' life and teaching. You see, he says he carefully investigated everything. I assume he interviewed the eyewitnesses that he, because he was a, a doctor, he did the CSI forensic thing. And what he's done is he's put together an account of what happened as Jesus romped around first century Palestine. Now I guess there's no sure 100% way that we'll know that Luke was 100% telling the truth. But as you read Luke's gospel, it all seems to add up. It doesn't seem like a fabrication. So the, the, the places, the names of people, the architecture, the plants and the formation of society all seem to correlate and fit in the right place. So I mean, uh, listening to this history geek this week and he said that, that what's interesting about the Gospels is the frequency of the names that are used and mentioned in the Gospels uh, um, correlate exactly to the frequency of name data that we have now, this uh, in the 21st century. So apparently there are 2,953 names uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And the frequency from outside of the Bible uh, matches exactly the frequency from inside of the Bible. So the most frequent and the second most frequent names outside of the New Testament match exactly the most popular and the second most uh, frequent names inside the New Testament. So anyone reckon they know what the most uh, frequent bloke's name is in the New Testament? Anyone got a guess? Simon. And uh, and there's loads of Simons in the Bible. And it's interesting that the New Testament writers, uh, when they come across a Simon, you notice they always give them a, a second name to differentiate them from another Simon. So it's not Simon S and Simon P. It's uh, Simon Peter and that kind of thing. And so, um, and the, the, the most popular girl's name? Lady's name? Mary. Mary, good. Uh, and and uh, we've got to remember that the gospel writers didn't have that frequency data. So they couldn't suddenly go, oh, we're going to take the, the top, pop, the most popular names and stick them in our gospels. They didn't have that data. It's only now uh, that we can see that, that, that what uh, should match matches. The gospel writers didn't have these stats. They couldn't make up the names. And if they did make up the names, we wouldn't get that correlation. Uh, As we look at the gospels, we also see people and places and uh, plants match up and be where they should be, as if this is really flesh and blood history. So in chapter 19, we meet a bloke called Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us that uh, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector from Jericho. And when you start investigating that kind of thing, uh, that makes sense because Jericho was this uh, major archery of trade and of travel and that's where you would find uh, a chief tax collector. Uh, We're told in Luke 19 that, that Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see over the crowd so he could see uh, Jesus. And the thing about sycamore trees is that they were common uh, to Jericho. 
And they weren't common to the places where, if you were inventing a myth about uh, Jesus of Nazareth, they weren't, they weren't common to those places. You didn't get sycamore trees in Greece or Turkey, the places where a first century myth would have started. But go to Jericho and you get sycamore trees. Interesting, isn't it? In chapter 8, we're told that Jesus raises the daughter of a bloke called Jairus. And we're told that Jairus is a notable synagogue ruler. And we're told where he lives. And we need to remember that if we were going to make up this stuff, you wouldn't include this kind of detail. You wouldn't leave a paper chase. You wouldn't mention uh, names that could be investigated. You leave it general and loose and vague. And, and the thing about all of this detail is that it was written down on really early manuscripts. So the New Testament, uh, the New Testament was written down in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So if you read uh, that Jesus raised Jairus's daughter then you could go and find Jairus and ask Jairus' mates or ask Jairus' daughter yourself whether uh, Jesus actually raised them from the dead. This isn't invented centuries after. It was written down in the life of the eyewitnesses who were alive at that point. And we have got a huge amounts of recorded manuscripts. The thing about when you wrote something down in the first century, you didn't get your A4 pad uh, from office works, you didn't get your laptop out, you got papyrus. And the thing about papyrus is that after a while it starts to go off and starts to disintegrate, so you have to keep writing it, uh, keep copying it down. And uh, the thing about... uh, uh, the thing about uh, the, the, the result of that is that we have lots and lots of really early manuscripts and, and um, translations of the gospel. So the accusation that, that this uh, myth about Jesus gradually snowballed over centuries and generations doesn't really stand up because of the manuscripts. Now, we don't have the originals of the manuscripts, uh, but the date and the amount of early manuscripts means that we can know with 99% accuracy, uh, we can know at 99% of what was in the original manuscripts. There's about 1% of stuff that we don't know that's missing, but no real uh, biblical doctrine or teaching falls down on that 1%. Uh, There are tens of thousands of early manuscripts and translations. Uh, A thousand times more manuscripts for the New Testament than any Greco-Roman scholar. Uh, So apparently there's a... The New Testament has, um, I'm told, 24,000 copies with a date of between 40 and 70 years after the original was written. Let's give you an idea of how close that is. The closest work uh, uh, to that is uh, Homer's Iliad, and that has only 643 copies. And those 643 copies have a date of 500 years 
after the original. So that really was centuries and generations, written down after centuries and generations after the original. So what we've got in our manuscripts, it's early and it's numerous. It's too early and too detailed to be legends, to, to be this big cover-up that happened over centuries. So I'm convinced that the Bible is history, not fiction. Well, secondly, I'm persuaded that the Bible is inspired, not conspired. So uh, it, well, I'm convinced that the, that the gospel writers didn't pull off this big, the biggest con in human history. Uh, I'm convinced that that is the case. Uh, and what I am convinced of is that, the, that God has orchestrated events in human history and guided the human hands of the writers to record exactly uh, what happened. Uh, So uh, he has designed it in a way, God has designed it in a way so that uh, we can pick up this book, so that we can look at what happened, so that we can look where Jairus lives, so that we can look at what Jairus did for a living. Uh, We can pull apart the evidence. Now I'm convinced that the I, I, I believe in the what, we, what scholars call the inerrancy of Scripture, that what is inspired by God is true. And that is not to say that some of the scribes didn't make errors as they were copying their little papyrus, you know, the first century sweatshop, uh, copying down things. And, and, and that is obvious in certain places, these incidents where a 50 gets mistaken for a 500 and uh, names that sound the same get, get written and that kind of thing. You see that. And what's great about our, our Bibles is that we have here, we are told where those things happen, where we're not quite sure of, uh, where we're not quite sure of what was in the original text. Uh, but I'm convinced that the original transmitted written down text is true and trustworthy, that God orchestrated it so that we can pull it apart, so that we can go to something like Christianity Explored and look at the evidence and work out whether it's true or not. And I want to encourage you to do that. If you're uh, here and you're thinking, there might be something in it, but I've never read a gospel. Grab a gospel, do Christianity Explored and and pull the evidence apart. Uh, It is designed so that... If uh, the Bible is a lie, then it can be exposed. Uh, The thing that gets me is that there are um, 66 documents in the Old and New Testament. It's written by 40 authors in three languages over 1,500 years from uh, different people with different backgrounds and different voices and different social classes in different countries. And they all hold together this single narrative arc. It's incredible as you read the Old and New Testament that the Bible holds together this single narrative arc and all point to Jesus. The Old Testament uh, pointing to Jesus' arrival and then the New Testament declaring and proclaiming the arrival of Jesus. It fits together beautifully. And if you read the Bible regularly, uh, you, would have, uh, you would see that. I wonder whether you knew that there are 2,500 predictions in the Bible. Did you know that? And 2,000 of those have been fulfilled to the letter. 300 of those predictions are about Jesus and 29 are fulfilled 
in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So all the Old Testament, all of the, uh, the, the weird stuff and the random stuff that we often don't understand, all points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's gone in biblical salvation history. Of course, when you write eyewitness accounts down, there are differences in the Gospels, and that is to be expected. There are differences in eyewitnesses' accounts, but there aren't contradictions. I've got a friend in the UK who's a criminal defence lawyer, and I remember him saying once that he says that it's when eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts marry up uh, identically that that's when you've got to be suspicious. He said that, um, uh, that you should expect different people to emphasize different things and see things in slightly uh, different ways. So if we've got, I don't know, if, um, if there was a, a crime reporter, I don't know, perhaps if, if Josh was described, Josh is a policeman, uh, if he was a de- no, detective, is that what, he's a detective. If, if, if uh, Josh was describing um, Lily coming into church uh, this evening, and Anna was describing Lily coming into church this evening, well, Josh might have been, uh, get his detective out and go, I wonder where Lily's been this evening. Uh, she's three minutes late, uh, she's got dirty hands, uh, and he starts writing his, and he starts noting all this stuff because he's a detective. Detective, and that's in his blood. And Anna is a, a fashion journalist, so she would be commenting on, on Lily's outfit and making a note of how lovely she looks and that kind of thing. So you, uh, that's kind of the thing that we get in the New Testament. We get uh, gospel writers with different backgrounds and uh, different focuses. Uh, uh, we should expect uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to be different because uh, they are giving their individual, they're giving their view of the same events. They order the material differently. Uh, they describe the same as events differently because they have a different audience. So Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience. And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So they've got different emphasis. That's not to say they don't have an agenda. They have an agenda, all right. And that is that their readers would meet Jesus. That is what they are all about. That is what floats their boat. That they want their original readers and they want us to meet Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. To to know Jesus and be saved by Jesus. And they all describe it differently. Uh, Matthew says to know Jesus is to follow Jesus. Mark says to be saved by Jesus is to be ransomed by Jesus. Luke says, uh, describes uh, knowing Jesus as being found by Jesus and John says to know Jesus is to know life to the full in Jesus they've all got their different agendas they've all got their different views but the same agenda of getting us to meet Jesus to know him to fall in love with him to be saved by him and to become a follower of him I think the thing that convinces me the most that the Bible is not fiction and is not full of contradiction, that it is trustworthy, is uh, that the New Testament writers went to the most horrific deaths proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he reigns today. I don't think I would uh, be tortured for something that I knew to be a lie. And I can't stand pain. 
I can't go to the dentist. I can't do anything. I, I would not get tortured. I would not go through any pain for something that I knew to be a lie. And I think that's why Christianity went viral, because people knew it to be true. They knew that Jesus died on a Roman cross, that they were convinced that Jesus was raised three days later. They're convinced that Jesus reigns as Lord and King, and they go crazy about it. Uh, People go all over the place telling everyone. Uh, There are... uh, um, there are accounts, uh, Tatticus uh, tells of the account of Christianity going viral in the first century world. Uh, Pliny describes how Nero blamed the burning, down, burning of Rome on Christians uh, just uh, 40 or 50 years after Jesus' death. Uh, Christianity has gone viral. It's spread across the near ancient world. It's gone uh, crazy. And, and, and it is because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead and was raised as, and, and reigns as king. Let me come back to that verse that I started with, the verse that I said changed my life. This is my kind of my verse that, that I love. Let me read it again. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The whole of the New Testament is convinced that Jesus died for sins. There is not a, a, a scholar of, a professor of ancient history in a proper university that would do, deny that Jesus existed and died. Uh, the New Testament is convinced that Jesus died for sins, uh, not for any random purpose, but to bring us into a relationship with our Creator uh, that we needed rescuing, and it took Jesus' death uh, to rescue us. That's why the, the New Testament writers went to great lengths to, uh, to preserve that message for future generations. Papyrus wasn't cheap. It was, went to great lengths to preserve what we have in our hands, this uh, dusty old book, the Bible. What I hope you'll see is that uh, Christians don't, we don't pin our hope on a book. We have the eyewitness accounts. Uh, We can uh, read them at any time we want. We can pull them apart. We can compare them to extra biblical sources and see that they stand up. But what we pin our hopes on, what we pin our lives on, is not a book, but a person. Uh, The Lord Jesus, who died, rose, and reigns now, and offers us forgiveness, and life, and rescue, and joy. There's a ton of stuff that we could have looked at. We could have looked at uh, loads of stuff in the British Museum. We could have looked at more manuscript data and slides and that kind of thing. But what I want you to take away is that in the pages of the Bible, we meet the real flesh and blood Jesus, who had DNA, who had hair strands, who had BO, who shaved, and that kind of thing. And he entered human history so that we would know him And he might take us to our creator and we might know life and joy in him. Can I pray for us?